I'm going to read um, a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 11. As I read it, I want you to imagine that you are there in the wilderness listening to Moses speak these words to you. And there's something strange about what he's saying, bearing in mind that he's talking about events that happened 40 years ago. I'm going to ask you if you can pick up on on what it is that's slightly odd about what he's saying. Moses says this, Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country, what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place. What he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the Reubenites, when the earth opened its mouth, right in the middle of all Israel, and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. Thank you, Richard. So what's strange about that passage. Any, any ideas? Anything peculiar about it? Any thoughts? So people are mouthing things. I can't make up what it is. They're not bold enough to, to say what, what, what they think. Any, any ideas? Any thoughts? In one sense, it's obvious. Moses is saying, look, it wasn't your children that went through all these things. Um, it was your father's who went through all that. Your children didn't go through the trauma of being slaves in Egypt. Your children didn't go through being delivered out of Egypt. Your children didn't experience the discipline of the Lord for 40 years. Your fathers went through all that. And the point is that your fathers went through all that so that your children would be able to go into the promised land. Think about it, is what he's saying. Your fathers had all those experiences for the benefit of your children. And then he says, you saw with your own eyes all these things that happened. Well, actually, most of them hadn't, because they were, they were too young. These were things that had happened to their fathers, not to them. So why say you saw it with your own eyes? It's because part of remembering, actually is imagining that you were there. We live in a stage now where hardly anybody is left alive who remembers the Great War. Very, very tiny number of people who were around at the time. Um, So how do we remember? Because we weren't there, we can't remember. But we can go back in our minds and imagine that we were. And part of remembering is calling to mind, what would it have been like if I had been there? And part of praying, actually, is putting yourself in the shoes of the people for whom you're praying. 
What are they going through? How does it feel? What would it be for me to be in their shoes? And when we do that, that's when we pray with understanding, with empathy, and with compassion, which is part of how God made us to be. Compassionate with people, empathising with them, so that we can pray for them with understanding. So what we're going to do is we are going to spend a few moments remembering the Great War in this kind of way. Moses says to the people of Israel, your children didn't go through all this over the past 40 years. Your fathers did. So that your children could enter the promised land. And for us, those of us who have children, we can look back to the events of 100 years ago and thank God that our children, by God's mercy, don't go through that. But remember that our fathers, some of us our grandfathers, some of us our great-grandfathers, did. And as we look and remember, we imagine what it would have been like to be there. So we're going to take our time over this. We're going to show some pictures of the Great War, just a few. And in your hearts, thank God that our children aren't going through that. Think about what it would have been like for those who did go through that. And remember with that level of understanding and empathy. So it was not your children who endured life in the trenches. But imagine that you saw it with your own eyes. What was it like? How did it feel? It was not your children who, when the whistle blew, went over the top, walking, running, making their way towards machine gun emplacements. Eyewitnesses speak of men being cut down like corn by a scythe. Not your children. But imagine that you saw this with your own eyes. your children who got caught on the barbed wire. But imagine that you saw it with your own eyes. children had to wade through mud, knee deep, thigh deep, mud so deep it would swallow men alive, some were never ever found again. Men venturing out in the mud to rescue a wounded soldier. It was not your children. 
but imagine that you saw this with your own eyes. Not your children who were wounded. You imagine the pain and the fear and the trauma. It was not your children who were blinded in gas attacks. Thank God that none of this happened to your children. But remember, as if you saw these things with your own eyes and came through those experiences yourself. It's 100 years ago that the Great War came to an end. After 17 million people had been killed and 20 million more injured and wounded. Thank God this didn't happen to your children. But remember it. Call it to mind as if you yourselves were there. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders fields. So we remember Arras, Passchendaele, Verdun, El Alamein, Normandy, Dresden, Nagasaki, Burma, Korea, the Falkland Islands, Northern Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan. Let us stand in silence and remember.
they shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years contend. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We will remember them. When you go home, tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. Now, for our second reading from Deuteronomy chapter 11, we pick up from what Tim had read earlier. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot, as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from the heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your crane, your grain, new wine and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce. And you'll soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road when you lie down, when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Lest we forget... It's a phrase that in my mind and probably in yours is inextricably associated with remembrance services. We need to remember the sacrifice, the tragedy, the suffering of war. And we remind ourselves that if we live in a period of relative peace and security now, to some extent it's because others gave their lives to make that peace possible. And although on Remembrance Sunday we do perhaps naturally remember those of our own nation who gave their lives, there should be no triumphalism or nationalism in our commemoration. It's not a celebration of victory, but a deep-seated mourning for our own losses in conflict and for those of any nationality 
whose lives have been or are in the process of being torn apart by war. We hold these annual ceremonies of remembrance lest we forget. The intentional purpose of these commemorations is to prevent or guard against ever forgetting those who gave their lives or the horrors of the conflict in which they lost their lives. To forget would be to dishonour them. To forget opens the possibility of making the same mistakes again. If we are to avert such catastrophic conflicts in the future, particularly given the unspeakable threat of global destruction which is posed by the existence and proliferation of nuclear weapons, we need to remember, lest we forget. I'm not sure when the phrase first became associated with remembrance services. There's a strong association with Anzac Day observed by Australia and New Zealand. I suppose that once the tradition developed of saying, we will remember them, the associated phrase, lest we forget, uh, naturally became part of the remembrance commemoration. But the phrase, lest we forget, was actually coined by Rudyard Kipling back in 1897 in his poem, Recessional. I'm going to read it to you and spend some time reflecting on it for a few moments. God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold dominion over palm and pine, Lord of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, an humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Far called, our navies melt away. On dune and headland sinks the fire. Lo, all our pomp of yesterday is one with Nineveh and Tyre. Judge of the nations. Spare us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. If drunk with sight of power, we loose wild tongues that have not thee in awe, such boastings as the Gentiles use, or lesser breeds without the law, Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. For heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard. All valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding calls not thee to guard. For frantic boast and foolish word, thy mercy on thy people, Lord. It's not an easy poem to understand. I'm going to spend a while reflecting on it. Set it in his context, Kipling wrote it after attending the Naval Review at Spithead, celebrating Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. He was overwhelmed by the sight of the 165 naval vessels on display and the military might and power they represented. He said he never dreamt that there was anything like it under heaven. It was beyond all words, beyond any description. Yet it was in response that he wrote this poem, written as something he said to avert the evil, the evil eye, because he perceived dangers 
in the celebration of military might that he was concerned to avert, if at all possible. So just spending a moment on each verse. The first verse has a recognition that Britain, empire, holds military dominion over far-flung areas, over palm and pine, but that's subject to divine authority. Whatever we do, we do beneath God's awful hand. And that is something we cannot afford to forget, was the point he was seeking to make. In verse 2, when all is said and done, once the tumult and the shouting and the fighting is over, the captains and the kings have left the field of battle, what's left? It's the sacrifice of a humble and a contrite heart. So it says in Psalm 51, these are the offerings, these are the sacrifices that the Lord will not despise. This is what we cannot afford to lose or lose sight of. In verse 3, he pictures navies bombarding distant shores, but as they disappear over the horizon, they melt away. It's a picture of weakness rather than strength. And Kipling recognises that yesterday's pomp is one with Nineveh and Tyre, ancient cities, ancient powers that no longer exist. Earthly power is transient and fragile. And it's out of a sense of fragility and vulnerability that Kipling asks the Lord of hosts to spare us yet. And he recognises the real danger that drunk with power we start boasting of of our, our capabilities. Foolish, godless boasting and Kipling sees it as a real danger to be avoided. We must not forget. And in the last verse, he discerns in Britain a heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard. In the might of the Royal Navy, he says, it's nothing but valiant dust built on dust. The line, guarding calls not thee to guard, reflects on the reliance of the country's own military might in forgetfulness of God. So for such foolish boasts and frantic words... Kipling asks for the Lord to have mercy on his people. The title of the poem, Recessional. Any Anglicans here? Anglicans will know that Recessional is the hymn that is sung as the clergy and choir process out of church at the end of the service. But Kipling in that title sees a recession of faith, a moving out of faith, a leaving of faith a disappearance of faith. He's concerned that faith in God is on its way out and it's that which he fears. In its original context then, written before the horrors of the Great War, Kipling's poem sounds a prophetic note. With hindsight, we can see how he warns against the nationalism that contributed to the arms race running up to World War I, the one in which he lost his own son in the Battle of Luz. And in many ways that conflict marked the beginning of the erosion of faith and trust in God that underpinned so many of the nation's values. And, and, and in both this country and, and in Germany, people were saying, you know, how does faith in God relate to the horrors of this? Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, standing up and finding he had nothing to say to his congregation in terms of the training he'd received, the understanding of God that had been passed on to him. 
having to come to a whole new understanding of who God is and how he works. In Britain, it's said that the men returned, who returned from the Great War were so overwhelmed by what they have been through and so appalled by the church's endorsement of the conflict, they never went to church again. So church became populated largely by women and children. And the children said, well, our dads haven't been, so why should we go? But we'll send our children. And their children said, well, you know, why should, why should we make our children go when we were sent? So the 20th century was a century in which the world was torn apart by two global conflicts. Conflicts resulting in massive and rapid technological advances in the West, which in many ways made First World Britain one of the safest and healthiest places in the world to live. But it was also a century accompanied by a gradual, almost inevitable, it felt like, loss of faith. And the tide hasn't stopped going out yet. There's a prophetic dimension to Kipling's poem, lest we forget. In the short term, we did. Trust was placed in military might and World War I ensued. In the long term, the country increasingly turned its back on God. And into the vacuum left by the recession of faith have swept the forces of individualism, consumerism, materialism and hedonism. When life stopped being about God, it started being all about pleasure and profit. Those are the gods that we started to worship instead of worshipping the Lord. And these bring global and social problems of their own making. We think back to Kipling's time, how he saw all too clearly the dangers of placing, replacing trust in God with faith in our own military prowess. And within 20 years of his writing the poem, the world was engulfed in the war to end all wars. Hundred years later, the challenge not to forget God remains with us. Because the result of worshipping the gods of pleasure and profit is climate change. And experts say not only that that is a result of man-made global warming, the indulgence of our own needs before the needs of creation, but there are serious concerns that if there is a third world war, it will be fought over increasingly scarce natural resources that are a direct result of man-made climate change. And we hear God warning people, saying, you know, if you forget the heavens will be shut up, I will no longer send rain upon the land. It will no longer be fertile or fruitful. And on a global scale, we can see that happening. Worshipping the gods of pleasure and profit have had a knock-on effect on the environment. And so as we think back to Moses talking to the people of Israel, warning them not to forget the Lord as they enter the land, not to worship other gods. That same warning comes to us. Do not forget. Do not worship the gods of pleasure and profit, putting your own desires ahead of everything else. There is still a prophetic call to remember the Lord. Because as Walter Brueggemann puts it in his commentary on Deuteronomy, disobedience leads to the demise of creation. He says, consider the case of agribusiness with its huge combines of money and power, with preferential treatment by the government. Land unloved but treated only commercially will finally refuse to produce. 
Uncurbed greed may sooner or later destroy the rainforests of South America and thereby alter in significant ways the climatic conditions of the whole planet. The neglect of the urban infrastructure and the anxious escape to the suburbs produces zones of high crime, poverty and social unrest that can scarcely be contained by more prisons. There is growing awareness that the destruction of the earth is accomplished slowly by the input of chemicals in the interests of better living and the periodic devastation wrought through wars that leave the environment unusable for generations. To be sure, there is no exact one-to-one correlation between the summons of Deuteronomy and the decisions characteristically made in a technological society. But the Bible doesn't worry about exact correlations in any case. It works rather by hint, by trace, by impression. And what the hints, traces and impressions of Deuteronomy might be saying to a technological, self-preoccupied society is that self-promotion that is not curbed by dread of the holy and self-sufficiency that is not impinged upon by the presence of the neighbour constitute a path to destruction. Lest we forget. We need to remember the Lord. And how he calls us to a different way of living. One which is governed by honouring him in how we live and treat others and the world in which we live, rather than a headlong pursuit of the personal goals of pleasure and profit. So Moses says to the people, when you get to the land, make sure you remember the Lord. Lest we forget. So we need to heed Moses' call. Fix God's word in your heart and mind. The call to tie God's word as symbols on our hands and bind them on our foreheads means that whether our job is manual labour or using our brain, whatever we do, we remember the Lord in what we do and how we do it. We carry God's word out with us as we leave the door in the morning, as we walk along the road, when we lie down, when we get up, and we are called to pass it on to the next generation. Because unless we stop pursuing the goals of pleasure and profit, the world looks like it will be an increasingly dangerous place for our children and our grandchildren. So remember the Lord. Do not forget him. And let the memory of him impact on how you live, your relationship with others and with the environment. Moses gave that message to the people of Israel as they stood on the threshold of the promised land, facing a new chapter full of challenges, threats and opportunities. His call was clear, remember the Lord. Kipling, standing on the eve of the 20th century, with all its appalling violence and unprecedented change, saw the dangers of the tide of faith moving out and issued a call, lest we forget. And as we look forward to an uncertain future, an increasingly dangerous world, where people are saying, in a couple of generations, human society as we know it will no longer exist. The call is to remember the Lord. Because if we forget, the repercussions are dire. The call is to base our lives on the priorities of his kingdom and make his kingdom the focus of our prayers and how we live. It's as we remember the Lord that there is hope for the future. In 1906, Kipling's poem was included in the English hymnal 